Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Lisa Peet. Lisa is the founder and executive director of The Taylor House, a transitional living program in Roseville, California. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for participating in our podcast series. How are you today? I am doing wonderful from sunny California. Oh, California. Thank you, Lynn, for having me. You're welcome. We're on opposite sides of the country. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited to be able to hear from you that we were able to connect. And I think to get started, what I'd like to do is ask you if you could please share a little bit about yourself, your own personal background, and how you came to be working with foster youth. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I found myself semi-retired in 2004, and folks told me I was far too young to do that, but I wanted to (laughs) do it anyways. And I was looking for opportunities to volunteer, and I found our local CASA program. For those who are not familiar with CASA, it stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates, and it's a nationwide volunteer program that allows people like myself to be trained and meet up with foster youth that are in care and advocate for them in court for anything from placements to school to just a variety of different things. And I found myself very involved in that program. And around 2006 and seven is when I started. It's interesting because the next course that we are going to be building for Aging Out Institute AOI Learning is going to be, what is CASA? So it'll be an online course. So if anybody listening wants to find out more details, listen to an interview with somebody from a CASA program, that will be coming out in a couple of months. It's a fantastic program. Amazing. It really is. So fantastic. So that was, you said about 2007 or so? Yes. Yes. So I started working, volunteering at CASA, and then I got more involved. And I started working with teen girls. And one of my first cases turned 18, and I noticed she did not have anywhere to go. There was not a home to return to, and she remained with a foster family that was starting to break apart. It was just kind of a mental note that I made to myself, and you know, I've kept in contact with her. She's 28 years old now. She is doing wonderful, but I just thought, wow, there's nobody really taking care of these kids that are turning 18, and they're terrified. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, CASA doesn't only work with the older foster youth. You can work with any age foster youth, right? Yes, we have babies. They call them the cutie pies. You can advocate for babies (laughs) or you can advocate for, you know, basically they want it to be the right fit for you. I thought I wanted to work with like 10 or 12-year-old girls. And the first case that I got was a 14-year-old. And I thought, okay, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's something that not everybody might be aware of is, you know, they're all ages, Now, our conversation, it really is revolving around the older foster youth and getting ready for aging out. So so you became aware of the issues that face young people aging out of foster care. Yes. And so how did you move then from CASA to the Taylor House? What was that journey like? Yes. Thank you for asking. So the Taylor House is a safe transition home for girls that emancipate out of foster care. Basically, as you had mentioned, I kind of made a mental note that this was something that was happening in our community, that these kids didn't have anywhere to go, and they certainly didn't have the skills to run their life on their own. So in 2011, I had an opportunity to buy a rundown seven-bedroom house in our local community. (laughs) 
And wow, I hit it at the right time. It was it an older house because yes. I don't know. Do they still build homes? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, and my realtor knows that I love older homes. So yes, it was built in like 1918, 1920, somewhere around there. It actually, ironically, had been a nonprofit before that for gentlemen that were getting out of jail. But the house was in foreclosure because that was the timing of the market then back in 2011. When I finally got inside the house, I thought, with all these bedrooms, what on earth am I going to do with all these bedrooms? And it literally came to me that night. I called my realtor in the morning and I said, I have to have that house. I'm going to turn it into a transition home for girls that emancipate out of foster care. And that was really how it started. So I purchased the home with my own money. It started as a grassroots effort. We closed on a Friday and on Saturday, we had 32 volunteers show up to help us get the house ready for contractors that were showing up on Monday. I would imagine there would have to have been a lot of updating Yes, for such an old home. Yes, yes. Think paneling. Lots and lots of paneling. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Okay. And the original (laughs) kitchen with the original cabinets, Uh, layers and layers of wallpaper. Some of it was newspaper that they used back in the 30s and 40s that the walls were wallpapered with newspaper. So we just had a bunch of volunteers show up. Even our presiding judge in our dependency court showed up for about four hours. And I looked out the window, I was standing in the house, and I saw Commissioner Ross walk by, and I thought, what's Commissioner Ross doing down here? And then then all of a sudden, he walked up to the house, and I said, good morning, Commissioner Ross. And he said, good morning, Lisa. You got me for four hours. Point me in the right direction. Oh, my goodness. He did. He worked hard, and so did all the other volunteers. And so three months later, basically, the dream became the reality and the house was complete. And I got a bunch of friends and family together and everybody adopted different rooms. That was fun because then the friends and family could decorate the rooms however they wanted. A local furniture store came along and they called me and said, Lisa, I heard what you're doing and we want to help. Keep in mind, there was no tax deductions at the time because this was a grassroots. We hadn't started a nonprofit. And I was basically just writing checks and (laughs) just kind of getting this thing afloat. And really not knowing exactly what it was going to look like because there was nothing to model it after. This is our 10-year anniversary. Our journey began in 2012. We received our first resident and she was a former foster youth that was attending our local community college, living in the dorms, wasn't quite working out for her. And she came to us and we gave her a tour and that's how we began. Wow. That is amazing, the commitment that you put into that. I am truly impressed. Thank you. That you just dove in. You're like, you know what? I want this to happen and we're just going to do it. Yes, yes. And it was, trust me, this was not easy. And anybody who works in residential and in housing knows very well that our hair is mostly on fire. But (laughs) (laughs) it's okay because we were wholly supported by community. You know, we had to, of course, create an advisory board. I just started with people that knew my heart and my intentions and people that were educated in the field. I had, you know, CASA volunteers, I had social workers, I had a former foster youth on the board, and then of course, friends and family. But we did, we all just kind of rolled our sleeves up and said, what do we do next? And we just took it day by day and just accepted new girls into the program. Unfortunately, they were our guinea pigs for a while, and we said that. It's kind of a a joke in the very beginning. Please bear with us. So, And they did. They did. They were grateful to have a beautifully furnished home in a great setting where they could walk to many amenities, you know, the local park, grocery stores, banks, 
restaurants, the bus. That's when people took buses 10 years ago. Not so much now they want Lyft and Uber, but (laughs) nevertheless, public transportation (laughs) is still available. And it's just a great setting and a super cute place. Where is Roseville in the state? It's right outside Sacramento. It's a little bit east, uh, about 15 miles east of Sacramento. Is it like a suburbia type of setting? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. And why the name Taylor House? Well, this is the part that's not that sexy. It's named after the street it's on. (laughs) Oh, there you go. All right. That made it easy. It did. It did. It's anti No racking your brain. No. (laughs) That was one of the easier things I did. You know what, though? I thought it was a name. But I kind of like that because then no matter who's running it, if the name were connected to a youth that kind of maybe motivated this whole thing, then that could be a forever thing. But if it was named after a person who's working there, that's always a little risky because then if that person leaves, the name is still there, but that person's gone. And so it gets to be a little difficult to explain down the road. And, you know, and that's a great point, Lynn, because the Taylor House, even though I started and I am the current executive director, I want the house to go on in perpetuity. And I don't have to be the person leading the charge. We've positioned ourselves that we could hire an executive director at any time and they could come in and take my spot and do what I do. So, right, exactly. And it can also easily be implemented in other communities. Yeah, that's a good point. You could expand. You know, getting such a large home might not be so scalable. I don't know how easy that is to do, but at least the model could be duplicated. Absolutely. And it actually has. I have, there's no secrets, I'm very transparent. I've had many women come to me and and men wanting to open a similar home. You know, I share whatever I have to help them get it going because one of the things we're always in need of is more rooms. Mm-hmm. There's never enough. Unfortunately, there's never enough. Well, I have a couple of questions. Just follow up before we get into the program itself. You had called this a safe transition home. It seems like you're emphasizing the safe. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yes, yeah, sure. Well, I see it as a safe transition home. It's a place for girls to come and to live and to build their foundation. I say it's a place for girls who are serious about getting their life on track. You know, we basically present them with all the resources they need to do that. Whatever their hearts desire, we can pretty much make it happen looking at our resources in our community. And it's a safe and stable place for them to make mistakes because, you know, when kids are in foster care, sometimes their stability is only as good as their last error that they've made. There's just not a lot of room for error when you're coming into another family's home and living with maybe biological kids and or other foster youth in the household, especially when they're teenagers, it can be really tough. We see that the mistakes that they make would be maybe a mistake that any of our kids might make but the tolerance level is a lot lower. That's a good way of explaining part of the challenge they face. It really is. And it's not to slight foster parents because I have been a foster parent myself. I know how difficult it can be. And there's just only so much that people can tolerate. We allow them a lot of opportunities to make mistakes. We love them through it. Of course, we have our thresholds as well. But at the end of the day, we're trying to basically we're raising other people's children. Right. I think the best way, well, I'll say the best, one of the best ways to learn in life is through mistakes. Yes. And I think when you're young, having somebody to guide you through the thought process, why do you think that didn't go well? What are some other options that could have been done? How do you think we can tackle this moving forward? 
you know, having those conversations really helps them learn how to troubleshoot their own lives when these things come up. That is exactly right. And communication is key. And that is a big emphasis that we have at the house is communication. Just come to us, have a conversation. It's okay. Just tell us what's going on and we're going to help you navigate through this, good, bad, or ugly. Yeah. And not shaming somebody for making a mistake. Absolutely not. Right. We all make mistakes. Yes. Especially when we're young. <laughs> yes. That 18 to 24 is a tough age group. You know, it's, yeah. that's when you do make a lot of mistakes. And well, sure. most kids have a strong safety net to lift them back up out of the problems and the bad choices and the bad decisions that they've made. And when they're minus that, which most of our girls are, then, you know, it makes it a lot tougher. You know, building trust is also another important aspect of what we do with the kids. Sure. Well, let me back up a little bit. And we're talking about getting the Taylor House started. I would imagine you had a real advantage in your role in CASA. You said you had so many volunteers as far as recruiting volunteers, because you had kind of a built-in group of friends and colleagues who care about what it is that you're trying to accomplish. That is well said. That is very true. Still to this day, I have CASA volunteers that will come and help or programs that they have extended to the Taylor House. They have a canines for kids program and their volunteer goes around with their dog. And, you know, our girls love animals mostly. So they'll bring their dog over. Their executive director has mentored me through many challenging situations. Their program manager, the same. So it's a great community to be involved in, and they're always willing to help in whatever way they can. I would imagine so. And it seems to me, I'm going to throw this out there as advice to anyone who might be wanting to start a program working with young people aging out of foster care. That spending some time working with a local CASA and working with the older foster youth, I would think would be invaluable before trying to start a program like this. And I'm not talking about just forgetting volunteers, <laughs> right? <laughs> but just understanding the challenges the young people face, understanding the legal issues as well, that there would be a huge advantage to having that experience. Oh, yes. I feel like it's very necessary to have an understanding of where they've come from because at the end of the day, they're in foster care through no fault of their own. And I think a lot of people think of foster youth, especially the older ones, the teenagers, as being bad kids. And really what they are is they're traumatized, abandoned, neglected, and abused individuals, and it's not their fault that it happened to them. To not understand where they've come from, to not understand families, to not understand cultural diversity would definitely be a challenge for somebody just starting off trying to house. Because again, when we're talking about housing, and it's one thing to employ them, but it's another thing to live with them. <laughs> so not having a good understanding of where they come from could definitely pose a challenge, bigger challenge. Right. All right. Let me ask this. I'm trying to follow the timeline. You've purchased the house. Mm -hmm. You've made the updates. You have a lot of support. Mm -hmm. So how did you go about planning the structure and the activities of your program? Did you benchmark against other programs? You said there weren't many, but I'm just curious. Did you read research? How did you pull together the program that you have? 
Well, I basically, I did not necessarily do research. (laughs) What I did was I took a very pragmatic approach to what somebody would need. And I look back at my own youth, my own childhood, my own teen years. I had a wonderful family that put me on a great path and had direction. And I just presented to them what I thought would be a real world experience. In the real world, when you're going to rent a room from somebody or a house or an apartment or something, you go and you check it out. And if you're interested, you fill out an application. If you're accepted into it, you sign a lease agreement. You know, you put up a security deposit. And that was really our jumping off point. It wasn't necessarily about collecting rents from the girls. It was more about teaching them this is how the real world is. So that's kind of what we started with. And we didn't fill all the rooms at once. We had one was an office, one was an overflow. So we started off with four girls at a time. So it was basically a four bedroom, two bath. We had a live-in house manager at the time. And as time progressed, we realized, okay, these kids are coming to us and these are the deficits that they have and the things that they need. And as we went along, it helped us build our program to what it is today. If you'd like me to launch into that, I can and just kind of share with you, you know, what we've been able to build over the last 10 years. Yeah, let's do that. I want to keep the flow of the conversation going. So let's go ahead and dive in. Okay. So in the spirit of considering the real world, and this is how things are in the real world, you have to work to pay rent. So we built what I call the five key pillars. The first pillar is employment. All the girls have to work to live at the Taylor house. If they come to us and they don't have a job, it's okay. We take them where they're at. Pretty much once they move in, they get busy and they have to start working. And we help them build a resume. If they've never worked before, we send them around the corner to one of our community partners who owns a cookie shop and she lets them volunteer there and shares with them, this is what it is to work and gives them some key outline areas that help them, you know, being timely not having your phone, good customer service, eye contact, cleanliness, all those kinds of things. And we have an intern now, which I'll talk about a little bit later because we haven't always had her, but we have an intern now that pretty much handles everything employment. Her and our program manager handle the day-to-day operations. And so they make sure that the girls understand how to fill out an application, how to look for a job, how to dress for a job, how to interview for a job, and then how to land the job, and then how to keep the job then that's always key. So that's the first pillar. Okay. Can I jump in just before we move on? Because my understanding from different conversations with folks who have employment expectations or programs themselves is young people, older foster youth, former foster youth, sometimes have difficulty maintaining the job. And that's aside from, it seems like the culture is shifting today as far as seeing jobs that, you know, I can job hop and that's fine as opposed to I'm going to get a job and keep it. That's a separate thing. But, you know, getting frustrated at work and quitting or what have you. And I just am wondering, do you have a way to support them to maximize the chances that they'll be able to keep their job? That's a great question. And sure, we have job hoppers at the house. We have girls that, you know, they'll come up with every excuse not to go to work. And so we, again, take them where they're at. And it's about natural consequences because at the end of the day, they're signing a month to month lease agreement with us that they're going to pay a certain amount of rent. Although it's a small amount, it's still a snapshot of what the real world is. We believe in natural consequences. 
And at the end of the day, if you can't pay rent, then you can't live at the Taylor house. When girls first arrive there, some of them have jobs, some of them don't, most of them don't have any money. It's okay. We use a graduated payment rent schedule for them so that everybody has skin in the game. That's really what we're looking for is it's not a handout and it feels much better and money has much more value when you've earned it and you've worked for it. It's not the same value when it's given to you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we basically, we have a policy like, I mean, it's okay if you leave your job, but now we put them on a timeline. You've got two weeks to find the next job. That's basically how we approach it. They have to meet with our program manager every week and work towards that. And I've actually, girls have responded pretty well to that. It could be challenging, but you know, many of them are dealing with other traumas still. And so, you know, we have to kind of honor that as well. But what happens when you get into a community living situation, they see the other girls are doing it and they also have trauma. So it's kind of about role modeling for each other. And then of course, the senior girls that are living there, they can be really great role models and they'll look and go, wow, she had the same upbringing as I did and look at her now. So that's been a great positive for us is having some of the senior girls living there, helping out, being good role models. When you say senior, do you mean the ones who have been there longer? Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's kind of employment in a nutshell, but it isn't always an ongoing, very fluid process for us, mm-hmm. you know, because <laughs> they're still trying to find their way. And at the end of the day, we try to figure out what makes them smile and what they really want to do. And of course, everybody wants to start at the top now, and that's just not how the real world is. So <laughs> right, that's another right. conversation. So <laughs> the second pillar that we focus on, Lynn, is education. And as part of the interview process, when the girls first come to the house, we ask them, do you have your high school diploma? And if they don't, right then and there, if they're interested in moving in, we make it mandatory. Not a GED, but an actual high school diploma. Usually they're maybe a dozen credits or less away. And we just explain to them how they've come this far in their life and fought this hard. And so we want them to cross the finish line. And they do. We've had 19 girls finish their high school diploma since they've been with us. And then we have a fabulous graduation party for them. And we have a photographer who does beautiful senior portraits, just really honoring the hard work that it took to get there because most of them lived through high school and trauma. It's a reward for that. And it builds their self-esteem and their confidence to have been able to complete that in spite of everything. Right. That's wonderful. And then in addition to that, we find out again, what makes them smile, what they want to do moving forward, whether it's college, whether it's trade schools, whether it's certification programs, we have them dabble in anything. We've had girls take acting classes, dancing classes, singing lessons, a lot of things that they may have missed out on working out at a gym, swimming lessons, a variety of different things. Our program manager and intern are bravely taking seven girls camping next week. God bless them. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not necessarily a formal education program. It's learning experiences. You want them to have those types of experiences. But we've had 34 girls sign up for college since they've been with us. We've had two girls graduate from certification programs, one girl graduate from esthetician and massage therapy school. We have seven AA degrees, five bachelor's degrees, and I've got one girl working on a master's degree right now. We're very into higher education. And again, 
Role modeling in the house is great. Right now, our intern is finishing a sociology degree. She's a former foster youth, and she's also a former Taylor House resident. And so she's a wonderful role model, and she handles all things education with the girls. She puts together study groups and helps them sign up for their classes. And when they do sign up for their college classes, we make sure that they sprinkle in something enjoyable and not just math and English and all the things that they missed in high school. All those things can be boring and difficult. And if you don't have good study habits, which a lot of the girls don't, it's tough. So we try to, again, try to sprinkle in something fun in their classes to kind of keep them motivated. We also have scholarships available, but, you know, most of the kids get their education, their books and all that paid for. When it comes to certification programs and trade schools, we cover the cost, but again, they have to have skin in the game. So for example, One of our girls wanted to go to CNA school, but she was one of those job hoppers. So that was kind of a pattern for her. And we were concerned that maybe she wasn't going to finish. And she had the money up front. And I said, you know, we'll make you a deal. You pay for the school up front. It was only $1,200. And when you graduate, we will pay you back. And she's like, okay. So she just graduated and we paid for her school for her. And we did it happily. You know, we had another girl that wanted to join acting classes and we said, great, we'll help you with that. You pay for the first X, Y, Z, and then we'll cover the rest of it after you've done, you know, so many, there was like maybe six classes and she only got to three classes and she didn't finish. So she was on the hook for the remainder of it. Because again, you know, you start something to stay committed to it is what we ask. But you don't necessarily need to use that approach with all your young people. It just sounds like you customize and are flexible based on where that young person is and what they need to motivate them. Absolutely, 100%. You cannot treat all of them the same because they're all different. But we do apply some of the same principles, I would say. But, you know, they're all on a different path. So we deal with them differently. All right. I don't want to rush you, but are we ready for the third pillar? Yes. I'm I'm so excited to get through these and hear them. (laughs) They're awesome. Thank you. So the third pillar is transportation. And this was a big one because we live in suburbia and, you know, they have to drive everywhere unless they can take the bus. So what we do is we cover the cost of their driver's permit. We cover the cost of their behind the wheel training and the license And then after they've had a job for 90 days and they've saved up to $2,500, we match them $2,500 to get their first car. We've helped 23 girls get cars. Out of all the girls that have come to the house since we started, we've only had eight girls come with a driver's license. So it's a really big deal for them to get their driver's license. That's something that we focus on. We don't force them to get it because driving in California can be scary. And kids just don't want to drive. You know, I remember when I got my license, I couldn't wait to get on the road. And these kids are like, I don't really want to drive. I'd rather have somebody chauffeur me around. With Uber and other ride sharing services, if you have a lot available in your area, I could absolutely see young people saying, why do I have to learn how to drive? Yes. So we ask them to at least, we tell them, of course, we're not going to force you to get a car. You don't have to get a car. But we do encourage them to get a driver's license. And the reason being, the let's just say two, three years down the road, you're stuck and you're with friends and somebody is unable to drive, at least you know how to drive. You know, it's just one of those life skills that we feel like is necessary. But again, nobody's forced to do that. If girls come to us with a car, for example, we had a young lady moved in about a year ago 
She had gone to a car lot and bought a car and, you know, it was starting to break down. She still had a huge car payment and debt on the car. And we said, okay, let's get in there. And we got her new tires and we got her her 100,000 mile checkup and different things like that. They're on the hook for paying their liability insurance. And when we first help them get a vehicle, we ask them that they have at least 90 days of liability insurance saved so that they can begin the process of budgeting for, you know, if they have a car payment or whatever. Yeah. So that's kind of in a nutshell. Then of course, in addition to that, we have volunteers that help with transportation. We also have volunteers that come and help them study for their permit and license test. We also have a bus system right across the street from the Taylor House. The local city has volunteers that will help just assist them learning how to ride the bus and the different stops and the different destinations and such like that. That's kind of what we do for transportation. So you said so few of these young people come out of foster care with a driver's license, or I should say they come to you without driver's licenses. Why do you think that is besides just not feeling like they need it? Are there barriers to these young people getting their driver's license? Yes. I think the biggest barrier is a liability issue. I think that sometimes when they're in foster care, that to sign off on a driver's permit, you have to have an adult sign off on that. And basically, they're taking the liability on themselves if you were to get in an accident. So I think that's one of the barriers. And that, and sometimes, you know, these kids are just trying to survive through their high school years and just finish And just the thought of those kinds of things, you know, it just depends on where they land, where their mindset is, what kind of family they're living with, the necessity of it. If somebody's willing to take the time, because it's a lot of time, got to practice with them and you've got to do it at night. Got to, you know, there's a lot of moving parts getting a driver's license, but I see that as being probably the two biggest ones. One is just a liability issue. And the other one is just a survival mode and driver's license doesn't seem that important. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Fourth pillar. Yes. Fourth pillar is health and wellness, health and wellness. And then this is a big one. As soon as girls arrive at the house, the first thing we do is ask them the last time they saw a doctor, a dentist, a vision specialist. We talk to them about their mental health. Many of our girls are on medication. You know, when was the last time you saw a mental health specialist to help you with that? Are you in therapy? So those are all the things that we look at and we also cover the cost of any of those things that they need. Most of our girls are on state assisted, what we call in California called Medi-Cal. And they can establish with a doctor and they can be seen. But unfortunately, it doesn't always work like that. It sounds great in theory, but at the end of the day, sometimes if our girls have a sore throat, we have to take them to the ER for that. So when they first arrive, we have established a relationship with a local organization that is a healthcare and it's funded by a local Indian tribe and they take Medi-Cal. And they have allowed the Taylor House to have our girls come and be a part of their facilities. And it's kind of, I know it's really fantastic. It's a one-stop shop. They have mental health specialists. They have just regular doctors, gynecologists, just your regular MD. They have vision, they have dental, they have everything, pharmacy there. So we get the girls in immediately. Some of the girls, they needed glasses since they were in middle school. And for some reason, they just don't have it. And we get them in right away. And the next thing you know, they can see again. (laughs) And um, (laughs) the last girl came to us, hadn't been to the dentist since she was nine years old. 
we kind of laugh at the Taylor house. It seems to be the house of wisdom teeth. We're actually working on the numbers to try to figure out how many girls we've had that have had their wisdom teeth removed. Yeah, that's the age though. It is. It is. <laughs> so, that's the age. That's when I had mine. Is that right? Mine were compacted and had to have all four of mine cut out. Yes. And we have this lovely volunteer who actually will come and spend the night at the house. She changes out their little ice packs and gives them their anti-inflammatories and makes sure that they're doing all the right things and that they're pain-free after that whole process. Then the last thing we cover, Lynn, is therapy. And for many folks working with foster youth, or if you don't, many of them are, are mandated by the courts to go to therapy. They're there through no fault of their own. It was a caregiver that is the reason that they're in foster care in the first place. So when they're mandated to go to therapy and tell their stories over and over and over, they're sick of it. They don't want to do it. And so, of course, we don't, it's not mandatory for them to do it, but it's an offering. And they have to come to it when they're ready. But, you know, my therapy bill runs about $1,000 a month and we happily pay it because when they're ready, they're ready. What we tell them is don't wait until you're 40 years old and stuff those emotions and these traumas down and cover them up with relationships and white picket fences and dogs and houses and jobs and all that kind of stuff. Let's address it now and try to work on it and have them come to a point that they do realize it's not their fault. And then they can try to work through that. So therapy is one of the the last pieces of the health and wellness that we focus on. Is that an expectation? I could see going either the direction of every young person, there's an expectation that you at least try therapy. And if you find out it's really not needed and it's not for you, great. You don't have to take it. Or it's just really on a case-by-case basis as to who would really benefit from therapy. It's a suggestion. Suggestion. Okay. It's just a suggestion. We never mandate it for them. Gotcha. And we just, we make a suggestion and, you know, and let them decide from there. And then many times, you know, they'll start it and it's not for them. Or, you know, we talked to them about the right therapist having the right fit. You know, life is about timing. So it can be a variety of different things and there's no shame. And if they don't want to do it, and then it's fine. And we not only do it for our residents that live at the house, but we also do it for our alumni girls. So girls that have lived at the house, but moved on, we'll still cover the cost of therapy for them because we know the importance of it. And if they're willing to sit in the chair and talk about it, then by all means, we're happy to support them while they do it. That's fantastic. All right. I know that time is going quickly. I wish we had a couple of hours to talk because I'm really (laughs) enjoying this. But I think maybe we can move on to the fifth pillar, if you don't mind. No, the fifth pillar is budgeting and banking. Basically, all the girls have to open a checking and savings account. They have to meet with our program manager weekly to go over their budget. For the first 90 days, we have them order checks from their bank so that they at least know how to write a check. Their checks are kind of becoming obsolete, but I wouldn't want them to be out there one day and be asked to write a check and they have no idea how to do it. So it's more of just a learning tool because as we've progressed, cash apps and other ways of paying landlords and car payments and different kinds of things, they come in different forms. So we just ask them to do that for the first 90 days. And then after that, they can either send it through their bank, rents and utilities through their bank or through you know one of the cash apps. And then we ask them to put aside a small amount for a savings account. If they have a car, then we have a third where it's a car savings so that in case the car breaks down or needs the oil change or 
those kinds of things. So, you know, we just help them manage that kind of stuff. And then at some point, depending on what their spending habits are, we have them open their checking account and take a look. Let's just see what it looks like, where your money went for the month of July. Oftentimes it's very eye-opening experience when they see DoorDash, 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 or they see Uber and Lyft over and over. And that's kind of where their money is going. So it's a great exercise. That's kind of what we're about. Here in California, there was a law passed about eight years ago where the kids now, former foster youth, they get a monthly stipend. You know, we help them manage that. And what we tell them is it would be better to save your monthly stipend and live off your work money because that's a more realistic snapshot of what life is going to look like in a few years when you're not getting that monthly stipend anymore. It's fun to save money. It's fun to watch your money grow. And so we kind of take that approach. So that's uh, budgeting and banking. And, you know, again, it's an important element. So yeah, those are the five pillars that we focus on. And then of course, there's many other things. Our intern does classes every month. She asks the girls, what do you want to learn this month? And it could be anything. It could be makeup. It could be cooking. It could be a motivational speaker to come to the house and talk about employment opportunities or other experiences out in the real world. For us, it's about exposure and creating awareness around different things because they don't know what they don't know. Many times they come to us and they say, oh, I want to be a social worker or a probation officer, or I want to go to school for criminal justice. And these are three very popular topics because these are the positive role models that they've seen in their lives over and over that maybe showed up on a monthly basis. And then many times you'll see families, you'll see many generations of teachers or doctors or whatever it may be, customer service at a phone company, or, you know, they were exposed to that early on. And so we kind of try to expose them to a lot of different things. If they come to us and say, Hey, you know, I'm interested in going into the service. We take them down to the local recruitment office and have them talk to the different elements of branches of service. And if they want to do a trade school or any of those kinds of things, again, it's just about creating awareness. I would imagine you have a lot of partners in the community to help with that kind of awareness. Yes, we do. We have wonderful community partners that have employment opportunities, volunteer opportunities. That's another thing that we do is if you're not working, then you need to volunteer. And so we find opportunities for them to volunteer. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of times until people are exposed, they don't realize it feels much better to give than to receive. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they usually will come back from a volunteer opportunity going, wow, that was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you've done a fantastic job explaining your program through these pillars. I really appreciate the organization of that. I like my life to be very well ordered. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that makes me very happy. So I I appreciate that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But I wanted to allow at least a couple of minutes for us to talk about how the foster care system can improve preparing these young people for adulthood. Where do you think the gaps are and how do you think they could be shored up? Gosh, that's such a broad and great question. I wish I had (laughs) the answers to it. I feel as if it's always going to be with us. In our community, I feel like we do a really great job of, you know, having the kids when they're teenagers, and I feel like we're getting better at it as we go along. Again, creating awareness about it, having classes, motivating the kids to come to the classes when they're 15, 16, and they'd really just rather be hanging out with friends, coming to the classes and learning those types of things that I aforementioned you know, employment, education, that kind of stuff. What I really think is that we have to swim way upstream 
And we have to help families when they're in crisis, when the kids are younger. That's how I see how we could help because at the end of the day, some of these kids have been in you know wonderful families, but they've experienced a traumatic event and everybody fell apart and there wasn't a big support system for them in that regard. Schools are also a great support system for a lot of kids. So working with the schools, keeping an eye out for the little ones, but really I think it's partially going to have to rely on prevention Yeah, and that's way upstream in my eyes. And it's huge. And it's huge because it's dealing with families. Yes. You know, our local CASA program has a wonderful component to them. That's basically they train volunteers to come in and it's mostly working with single moms, but helping them. It's important to read to your child. It's important to have organization. It's important to make sure that your kids get enough sleep and, you know, it's proper parenting. And that's always not easy to do. You know, folks have their own ideas and they're free to do it how they wish. And it's very personal to people. Yes. I would imagine folks would get defensive if you're trying to tell them what they would perceive is you're doing it wrong. Yes. And, you know, right now it's the program is for folks that have kids are in the system that they've been returned to them, but they want them to go through this additional program to kind of help them understand because maybe that's not how they were raised. You know, when we know better, we do better, right? So that's kind of how I see it. There's no magic bullet. I feel like we've made a lot of changes in our community. You know, we shut down emergency shelters and put it more in the hands of emergency families and train the families to do it. So we'll see if it goes back to emergency shelters or not. I know when I was a CASA volunteer and I had kids in the shelter, they loved it because the staff was so amazing and they were with other kids that they knew. You know, we could talk on and on and on about this. <laughs> I'm sure we could. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's absolute truth in the best way to approach it would be to try to help earlier in their lives when the children are children, mm-hmm. right? And not teenagers. And also, like you're saying, upstream, yes, where helping the families before it gets to a point where the young people are put into foster care. Yes, How that looks, how it happens, the best approaches, that's a whole other conversation. Right. That, like I said, it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> I love the advocacy programs of like Big Brother, Big Sister, you know, things like that. When kids build a rapport and trust with somebody outside of their family or even inside of their family that they know that they have that person to rely on and that person is you know shows up when they say, does what they say and cares about them unconditionally, it makes a huge difference in their lives. When they don't have that, that's when things get really, really tough. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to bring this to a close. But before we do, if anybody listening would be interested in donating to your program, is there a way for them to do so? And if so, how do they do that? Sure. Thank you for asking. We would love that. So they can just go right to our website and every page of our website has a donate button. And the website is thetaylorhouse.org. And it's T-A-Y-L-O-R. So the Taylor House. Fantastic. Yes. And are you open to hearing from listeners who would like to talk to you about your program? Maybe they have a program themselves and they just want to bounce ideas back and forth or they're thinking about starting a program. I'm guessing from something you said earlier that you would be absolutely open to that. Yes. And if you go to my website, (laughs) I'm happy to help. I'm an open book and I'm also a great problem solver. If they're in a situation that they need help with that or, you know, hey, what do you guys do? Happy to share that also. And If you just go into contact us, the email comes right to me. 
Fantastic. So hopefully our listeners will take the opportunity to check that out and contact you if they want to talk with you about that. I thank you so much, Lisa, for talking with me today and sharing about yourself, but also about your program. I wish you all the best. I think you're doing an amazing thing out there in California. And it sounds like yours really would be a good model for other programs to look to if they're trying to build their own or revise their own. Thank you, Lynn. I appreciate that. Yes, I think we do at this point have a pretty well-oiled machine. We also have other things that we do, but you can go on our website and learn about our Aspiring Entrepreneur Program and a few other things that we have to offer. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. For those who have listened to the very end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can go to our website, agingoutinstitute.org, and click on the podcast button, and that will take you to our list of podcasts. We also want to share that starting September 1st, Aging Out Institute is launching a new online community for organizations that work with young people aging out of foster care. Again, you can go to agingoutinstitute.org and look for the AOI community link. And that will take you to the site. After September 1st, registration can begin if you're interested in joining. And we'd love to have you and start troubleshooting and problem solving and sharing resources. And it's going to be fantastic. So thank you for listening. Until next time.